coming your way live and in real time. Radio Monday through Friday evenings from uh, uh, Monday through Friday evenings from nine till ten, or actually radio time nine oh six. We're we're right there now to ten. We try to bring you programs that are uh, uh, educational and uh, entertaining. And uh, tonight's will certainly be educational and I think probably entertaining, too, because we've got a, a guest who's used to talking to people about the subject that he's going to be talking to, to talking about, rather, tonight. Our guest tonight is a, a gentleman named Dean Harry, who's been visiting with us. Dean, I would say it's about 10 years now, wouldn't you? Yeah, pretty close to it. Yeah, you That's were, right. I, if I remember correctly, you were doing a narration or doing a Q&A session with a showing of the movie Gettysburg at the Museum of History when I when I found out about you and invited you to come and, and we've had a good time talking about the Battle of Gettysburg and it's one of those things that I, I think we need to commemorate, we need to remember because of its importance as a near turning point along with the Battle of Gettysburg, a Battle of Vicksburg in, in the Civil War and if nothing else it produced a uh, at Gettysburg uh, in November of that year, the Gettysburg Address. And, uh, Dean, I think it's significant that General Eisenhower chose to live near uh, near Gettysburg, and I think there's some historical things, uh, museum things there with regard to him, aren't there? Yes, I mean, uh, actually his his home, his estate is there. It's now part of the National, it's his own national park, um, Eisenhower Center. It actually... Um, there was a tank training center there during World War One, and he had been commander of it, Camp Colt, and liked Gettysburg. And when he retired uh, as a five-star general, he bought some property and rehabilitated it, started raising Angus cattle uh, in Gettysburg. It's the only home he ever owned. And when he passed away, he left it to the National Park. Uh, his wife lived there for 10 more years. And then it was open to the public. Okay, that's great. Uh, you know, the word iconic is much overused these days, but I, I think if there is a kind of iconic status that can be attributed to Gettysburg because of the battle, the address by Lincoln, and the presence of General Eisenhower's home after he was president of the United States and served as Supreme Allied Commander uh, in Europe during World War II, the military connection doesn't hurt there either. We're going to talk about things military tonight, because as I indicated, uh, what happened at Gettysburg, July 1, 2, 3, in the year 1863, uh, most most often is cited, and you 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 will tell us what you think, uh, uh, if, if, if appropriate, Dean, as a, a turning point, uh, a point where what might have been was probably not going to be during the American Civil War. But as I warned you I would do, Dean, uh, and Dean, by the way, Dean Harry is a certified guide at uh, at Gettysburg. It's a national uh, military memorial park or, or national military park. I don't know whether the word, word memorial is in there or not, but what that means is if you're going to be a guide, you can't just go out and set up your tent and say, I'm going to guide folks around. You have to, uh, have to pass some tests, be certified, jump through some hoops, and be certified so that... Uh, you're on the list of those people who are allowed to give tours. And, uh, Dean, I read some of your reviews. You get pretty good reviews on your tours, including the ones that uh, where you take people on the bike tour. So maybe some of our <laughs> listeners will decide they need to drive up Highway 15, which I think goes out of Durham and goes all the way to Gettysburg, if I remember correctly. Uh, 
anyway, I told Dean Harry, uh, our Civil War guy tonight, that I was going to start by saying, you know, Dean, they were didn't plan to have the battle there. Uh, General Lee was kind of making a move into the north, and uh, the Union Army was sort of in between commanders almost. So, Dean, I'm going to hand you the ball and tell us how we got into this. And sort of the 50-cent version of what happened in the three days, July 1, 2, 3, 1863. Well, we'll kind of start with, with why Confederates um, went to Pennsylvania in the first place. I mean, when the uh, southern states began to secede from the Union, they had this idea that uh, northern states wouldn't care that much, would leave them alone, and all they would really need to do was protect their own borders and, and uh, show that they were peaceful people. And yet, uh, two years later, we find 75,000 southern soldiers uh, in south-central Pennsylvania with, and who knows where they're headed to, maybe Harrisburg, maybe Washington. Certainly, northerners were getting upset about it and being there. Uh, what had happened was the, the Confederate Army uh, realized that they were running out of supplies, General Robert E. Lee, Army was running out of supplies. He needed to give Virginia farmers a break, uh, feed his army. Uh, there was a lot of political unrest in the North because the war was going fairly poorly uh, for Northern armies. General Lee had been beating uh, the Union Army of the Potomac uh, over and over in Virginia. And the thought was that the Lincoln administration uh, might just collapse if there was some kind of a big Confederate victory uh, on Northern soil. And so we used the Carondale Valley, the Cumberland Valley, the Blue Ridge Mountains to screen a, a raid, let's call it, into Pennsylvania, gathering supplies. Of course, his army is going to be spread out over a large area looking for supplies. Uh, Union Army, commanded by Joseph Hooker, was sent from Virginia to uh, Washington, the Army of the Potomac, towards Washington to try to protect it and to find and then uh, hopefully chase Lee's army out of uh, Pennsylvania, wherever it was headed. Uh, on the way up, uh, General Hooker uh, decided to resign, and General uh, Meade, George Gordon Meade, took over on the 28th of June, just three days before this battle at Gettysburg. So we have two pretty enormous armies, 75,000 Confederate soldiers, 90,000 Union soldiers, spread out over an area, uh, really, the Union Army spread out over about a 25 or 30-mile area, Confederates over uh, 75-mile arc, really. And then uh, the uh, small portions of them begin to stumble into each other in Gettysburg on the 30th of June, 1863. And on July 1st, more or less accidentally, a battle starts there. Just small portions of both armies there. But uh, it's an important town. There's 2,400 people living there. There are 10 roads that intersect there and a railroad. <clears throat> and so this uh, it, it, it uh, offers an opportunity for both armies to assemble pretty rapidly. So uh, Confederates approaching from two directions, west and north, on July 1st, managed to get a fairly substantial number of men on the field, somewhere around 27,000, 28,000, uh, and they defeat uh, a Union uh, portion of the Union Army pretty substantially, about 17,000, 18,000 uh, Union soldiers are driven back towards some high ground south of town. And so um, this first day battle appears to be uh, somewhat of a southern success, and uh, the northern uh, General Meade has to decide, you know, am I going to recall my part of the army that's 
sort of got defeated there. We're going to recall them, maybe closer to Washington, see if we can and, uh, save Washington, stop any Confederate threat there. Or do I assemble my army at Gettysburg and try to defeat the General Lee there? So both generals have to decide, are we going to stay or are we going to go? And uh, as it turns out, both generals decide to stay. And this leads to uh, July 2nd, which I believe uh, is you know, maybe one of the most important days in American history because the war, uh, it's a day full of drama. You've got uh, generals on both sides. Dean, before we go on yeah. to that, we, we're going to need to take a break. So I want to ask you a question about day one, and then we'll okay. be fired up to have a an open field for you to take a run at, at day two. How about that? Uh, okay. Where do you stand on the, or do you stand? It's not necessary that you stand, but there, uh, sometimes there is a discussion about, and I believe it's uh, Ewell who took Stonewall Jackson's place, and that he may not have gone forward as quickly as Jackson might have done, and and uh, the, therefore the battle on the first day was not as much of a victory for the Confederates as it might have been, and that the Confederates ended up driving the, the Federals, the Union Army, through the town onto the hill where they had a superior position. Now, but I guess the question is, if Stonewall had been there, would it have been different? Uh, if he'd been alive and been there? <laughs> Pardon me? Well, perhaps. You know, my, my thought about that, and I've, I've actually done some pretty in-depth programs on that, so we could really talk about that for an hour probably. Uh, my thought about that is, first of all, um, General Yule, I think, of all the Confederate commanders there, I believe generals, did as good and maybe better job than anybody at Gettysburg. All of them made mistakes. Uh, by the time he got permission to attack Cemetery Hill, um, it was so strongly defended that I think any attack would have been futile. He could have uh, gotten on another hill, Culp's Hill, and probably dislodged Meade from his position on Cemetery Hill. And Newell ordered his men to go there, but failed to supervise them properly and make sure that it was done. And so um, I do, I think he has to accept some blame for that. Donald Jackson, um, people were afraid to disobey his orders. And so, you know, had Stonewall ordered soldiers to go to Culp's Hill, uh, I think they probably, he would have made sure that it happened. So it could have been different. Okay, but well, uh, I don't right believe it. I'm sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh-huh. I, I just say that I think you all made the right decision, except uh, didn't follow up on it properly. Okay. And so we're ready for day two now. And you've already teased us by telling us you think it's one of the most important uh, days. And, uh, well, I, well, I didn't let you finish the sentence. So we're not only going to find out what happened, we're going to let you finish your sentence right after we take this break. Big day in American history. The Battle of Gettysburg had begun on uh, July the 1st, and it would go three days, uh, July 1, 2, and 3. In fact, in, in dealing with the Battle of Gettysburg, is quite often the easiest way to do it uh, for an historian is to do one day at a time. And we've talked with our guest tonight, uh, Dean Harry, who is a certified guide at, at uh, Gettysburg uh, about... Uh, what happened on day one, and we're up to day two, which may be the really important day, and I think uh, maybe one of the most important days in American military history. Dean, are you there? I am. It's time to hand you the ball and let you run with it and talk about Longstreet and the, the, the 
round tops and stuff like that. Yeah, as I mentioned, I, I think, you know, July 2nd, 1863, one of the most dramatic days in the Civil War. Uh, the story of July 2nd involves a number of major characters you've already mentioned. Of course, Robert E. Lee, James Longstreet, Confederate generals. Uh, on the Union side, the story tends to revolve around, you know, George Meade and then uh, General Sickles, one of his corps commanders, is going to uh, kind of throw a monkey wrench into Meade's plan. But essentially, here's, here's the deal. In the morning of July 2nd, uh, the armies have been assembling throughout the night. Meade is still missing probably 20, 25,000 of his 90,000 men. Lee has another 15 or 20,000 uh, nearby that are trying to show up. So uh, Lee has options. So he could he could maintain the initiative, maintain his position by attacking. Uh, he could dig in and wait for General Meade to attack him. He could retreat or maneuver. Uh, those are only options that uh, the military people have when they're confronted with the enemy. Uh, and Lee's most um, most experienced corps commander, James Longstreet, a guy he would depend on uh, not only to execute large attacks but depend on for advice, favors the third option, retreating or maneuvering. So let's go closer to Washington. Let's see if we can induce General Meade to attack us on ground of our choosing. This doesn't look so good. Meade has established a line that they can see on Culp's Hill and Cemetery Hill and Cemetery Ridge and maybe even uh, have, have the end of it anchored on some ground, high ground around top. Longstreet doesn't like the idea of attacking Union positions on high ground, particularly since the Union Army is bigger than his, and so are bigger than theirs. Uh, Lee, um, our Confederate general, favors a quick attack. And, the, and uh, of course, what the what the main guy favors is what's going to happen, or what he's going to try to do. Uh, a quick attack uh, never really gets going, and so there won't be any fighting until about four o'clock in the afternoon, a full twenty-four hours after fighting ended on July 1st. General Meade, uh, who has the same options as Lee, he could attack, he could wait for Lee to attack him or retreat or maneuver. Uh, he wants to wait, uh, and he hopes that Lee doesn't attack him before his guys get there. He says, I got the high ground, I've got a, a road to Washington that's bringing me supplies and I could retreat on if I need to. If I can just stay here, Lee will not be able to chase me off this ground and I will have won the Battle of Gettysburg, at least I won't have lost it. And that's just uh, what he's trying to do, is avoid a big defeat. And so his big fear is that Lee will attack before he gets ready. Uh, but Meade makes a mistake. Meade uh, looks at where the Confederates are, where he can see them uh, appear to be staging uh, for to attack his right. Uh, all the time, Lee has some actually a little misinformation about the strength of the Union West of Little Round Top area, has decided to order General Longstreet to move two and a half miles south under cover of uh, ridges and trees and launch a surprise attack on the Union left. So Meade strips his left of soldiers <laughs> and to reinforce the right while Lee is sending all kinds of his men uh, to the Confederate right to attack the Union left. So we got this drama going on there. And then, of course, there's a, a gentleman you mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, just, just hours before Lee's ready, Longstreet's ready to launch his attack on the on the Union left. Um, the situation is even more dire for me when General 
cemetery red, you know, over a little on top. That goes those men three quarters of a mile forward uh, to some high ground along Emmitsburg Road, where he is vulnerable to attack from multiple directions. Hamid will discover this uh, just really moments before the Confederates launch their attack, and then Meade has to to uh, rapidly try to redeploy his army, uh, at least 20,000, 25,000 soldiers, to try to move them from one side of his three-mile line to the other uh, before it collapses, which he is just barely able to do, thanks to some heroic fighting uh, from uh, people like Joshua Chamberlain and, and Patrick O'Rourke on the little round top and uh, the defense of the Union left there. Union line barely manages to hold on, and the fighting will end uh, probably around 6 or 7 o'clock, uh, close to 8 o'clock in the, in the evening on the Union left. Confederates then launch uh, several more attacks, uh, having fought on the left, places like the Peach Orchard, Wheatfield, Devil's Den, Bull Round Top, and the Confederates attack the other side of the Union line. On a cult cell in East Cemetery Hill, nearly breaking the Union line there. So by the time fighting ends on July 2nd, something like uh, somewhere between 17 and 20,000 uh, soldiers have been killed, wounded, captured, or missing. 20,000 soldiers in just six hours. Yeah, um, Joshua Chamberlain, uh, his group. That was that the that they were down to the end of the line. Where Sickles yeah. people had been, right? Well, they were where Sickles people had had never gone, but were supposed to go. Were supposed to go. Okay. Sickles, supposed to go. Right. Uh, were supposed to go, and so and they got there. Uh, that wasn't just them, but they got there. They were the very end of the line. Got there just moments before uh, Confederates would have overrun that position, and were able to hold on to the high ground. Very dramatic uh, fighting there. Um, so by the time um, you know, the day in, you know, Meade's still faced with these options. You know, do I do I leave? I've lost twenty. I've lost you know twenty thousand soldiers in two days of fighting. Uh, my guys are beaten all to pieces, uh, but I still hold this high ground. I still got the open road, the Baltimore road. He has every opportunity, uh, and most of his predecessors, I think, would have uh, retreated back closer to Washington, closer to the defenses closer to their supply bases. Uh, but Meade says, you know, um, I think um, that, that Lee has thrown his best of me, that we stayed here, and that these guys will stay and fight. Well, I'm going to stay here with them. And, and the Union Army stayed at Gettysburg. It could have easily gone the other way. Lee didn't seem to recognize, um, at least after the, after the battle, he's either... He puts a more positive spin on July 2nd than I think would really happen. He says, you know, we made substantial gains. We pushed these guys another three-quarters of a mile. Uh, I could see them breaking here. I could see them breaking there. I could feel it. Uh, he, he cites what he calls a, a uh, lack of concert of action. Let's, lack let's, of proper concert of action. Let's stop right here now because we're at a good point now because we're – the, the, all the pieces are tipping right now towards the third day, and we're ready to talk about that. But we'll do that after we check the news. I'm Tom Curry, the Tom Curry Show for uh, Thursday night, July the 2nd in the year 2020, commemorating the 157th anniversary of the Battle of Gettysburg, a momentous time in American history. 
and uh, the battle lasted three days. I think it was the largest land battle in, that took place in the United States uh, in terms of however you measured it, the casualties, etc. And we have as our guest tonight Mr. Dean Harry, who is a uh, official guide at Gettysburg for those who wish to go and take the tour. And, and it's an awe-inspiring place to me uh, when 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 I've been there, I've actually been, I think, two times, maybe three. I certainly, the last time I, when I stood down in the Devil's Den, I thought, oh, this is this is it. But Dean is here with us tonight, and we're to day three, uh, July 3rd, 1863, and a day for a momentous decision. Dean? Yes, I mean, as we were talking about uh, the end of July 2nd, that, um, you know, General Meade's Worst fear had, in, in some ways, had happened. His army had been attacked before it was assembled, but they had held on. Now he had the high ground, and all he has to do to win a battle at Gettysburg is stay there. If uh, General Lee, our Confederate general, wants to win a victory, his job is harder. He's going to have to to knock the Union off the high ground, get them out of Gettysburg, to chase them back towards Washington. Otherwise, anything else he does is will be looked at as a defeat. Uh, having thought that uh, all he lacked was a proper concert of action on July 2nd, in other words, coordinating fighting on the Union left and right, he ordered the, those two attacks to begin again at dawn on July 3rd. Uh, the attack on the Union right took place, started at 4.30 in the morning. Uh, the General Longstreet failed to, uh, to launch his early morning attack. Uh, he felt like... The orders hadn't been all that specific. He was just supposed to do something, and it was up to him to, to decide when and where. And uh, Lee, of course, uh, very unhappy. And so, uh, but by the time Lee got down to the Confederate right to look at the situation on the Union left, Little Round Top, those areas, uh, he had to agree with General Longstreet that under the circumstances, any attack on that high ground would be um, likely to result in too many casualties and and uh, not be all that, he wasn't all that sanguine of success. We had to come up with a new plan, which General Longstreet hoped would be leave. <laughs> leave Gettysburg, let's get out of here, let's fall back uh, towards our base in Virginia. Uh, but Lee said, you know, Lee, uh, they've, uh, they're strong on the right, they're strong on the left, they've got the high ground, they must be weak somewhere. And he looks at the Union Center for two hours, examining it, counting cannon seeing if we can count soldiers over there, which there decides it, that a massive assault of 15,000 men, 150 pieces of artillery on the Union Center will break it, and he will have won the victory that he's looking for at Gettysburg, and maybe, just maybe, have won Southern independence. It feels as like in his grasp. Uh, Lee's a gambler. Uh, he doesn't have to have all the odds in his favor to make uh, to make a decision. Uh, he will He will gamble if the stakes are worth it. And he feels like they are. It's like we've come this far, not going to go away without giving it our best shot. And so he puts his best general, General Longstreet, uh, in charge of uh, coordinating this assault. Longstreet has no confidence in his success, doesn't want to have anything to do with it. Um, the attack that we're going to, that is called Pickett's Charge because of uh, General Pickett's Virginia Division will constitute just about half the attack force. Um, and of course, as uh, as most of us know, uh, the attack was a spectacular failure. Uh, about twelve thousand Confederates attempted to cross a mile of open ground under heavy artillery fire. 
uh, facing uh, Union musketry when they get uh, when they get there. Once again, they break the Union line but can't hold it and are driven back with enormous loss, uh, losing probably something like 5,000 men in the hour that the attack took uh, from start to finish. So, um, and it is, of course, the thing that Gettysburg is most famous for, Pickett's Charge, um, a dramatic, climatic turning point in the battle, the end of the battle, really. And as, uh, as uh, some Confederate Union soldiers said, when the Confederates retreated from uh, Cemetery Ridge on July 3rd, it was a retreat that didn't end until Appomattox two years later. And uh, there's, some, there's some truth to that. Let me ask you a question as a North Carolinian. Uh, uh, we have, of late, uh, uh, I don't know how much of late, began to contend that sometimes it ought to be called Pettigrew's Charge rather than Pickett's Charge. Uh, is there any reason to think that that might be sensible to do because of James Johnson Pettigrew, whose men were, I think, in an in a early, early echelon of, the, of Pickett's troops marching up the hill? Yeah, well, what happened was, um, you know, General Longstreet, of course, one of Lee's uh, three corps commanders, is in charge of the assault. He has three division commanders in there, General Pickett, General Pettigrew, and General Tremble. So the the proper name for the charge, which should be Longstreet's July 3rd assault or Pickett-Pettigrew-Tremble charge. But um, since the Virginians essentially wrote the history of the Confederacy, um, and Virginia, they tended to, to write about their guys to the, to the detriment of, of everybody else. <clears throat> and, of course, Pettigrew uh, didn't survive to write his story. Uh, he was killed on the retreat back to Virginia. And so um, over the years, it just came to be Pickett's Charge. When I first became a guide, Tom, I tried to call it uh, Pickett Pettigrew Tremble Assault. I'd stand there on Cemetery Ridge, and I'd say, this is where Pickett, Pettigrew, Trimble launched his 12,000 men. We'd go through the whole thing, and then I'd say, are there any questions? And more often than not, people would be, aren't we going to see Pickett's Charge? <laughs> and I was like, well, we just did. So I gave up. I call it Pickett's Charge, like everybody else does. Well, I remember you and you reading an article and your point about, and it was about your point about the Virginians got to write the history, and, and indeed that was true. And uh, uh, a particular uh, Pickett's wife was said to be his best press agent. You know, she devoted a good bit of her life to keeping the, the keeping it alive that it was indeed Pickett's charge that that took place that day, and so on. Oh yeah, it was. And of course, you know, a little side story to that is General Lee never really liked Pickett that much. He had been uh, he and General Longstreet were friends. General Pickett, and General Longstreet, they had. They were, of course, all West Point guys, and they had fought together in the Mexican-American War. Um, we didn't think much of Pickett, particularly after the Battle of Gettysburg, when Pickett carefully told General Lee, and Lee said, General Pickett, look to your division, and General Pickett, with tears streaming down his face, says, General Lee, I have no division, and uh, asked to be to let his men go to the rear, which Lee did. Um, and so Lee ends up firing uh, Pickett, dismissing him from the Army, uh, just before the end of the war, for something that happened just outside of Petersburg, but um, so you know those two guys weren't all that all that friendly, but uh, but she did after his wife did after 
the war was uh, was was over. And of course, after Lee was dead, and after Pickett was dead, she she really devoted the rest of her life to to uh, making him a very heroic figure. Well, I one visit to Gettysburg, I was down at the, uh, where the 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 uh, Pickett's troops and the uh, Confederate troops probably started to walk across. Uh, I don't know, Longstreet or somebody said, you know, it's a mile across there and it's uphill. And uh, and I walked up and stepped over the little stone fence there. And I, ever since then, I haven't had as much reverence for General Lee as I might have as a young boy. I, I just don't just don't see, except for those qualities of spirit or whatever it is that the Confederate soldier was supposed to have had, I can't see his doing that. And I, I think it hasn't been called into question by a fair number of military types. Yeah, I mean, it's true. It's a desperate gamble. Um, and most people, uh, Tom, when they come to Gettysburg for my tours, I've had an awful lot of people uh, would would begin, like the first question they asked me was, wasn't General Lee an idiot to order Pickett's charge? And I'm like, you know, we hadn't even started July 1st yet. You know, so just let me, let me go through this, build into it, and then you tell me. And I think when you go through it, you know, step by step, and I realize that the misinformation that General Lee gets on July 3rd about the, the Union positions over there, uh, he doesn't get a lot of support from his own generals in much of the attack. And then the, the artillery barrage, which is the linchpin of the whole thing, turns out to be a massive uh, failure. Uh, had the artillery barrage worked and his men not been subjected to artillery fire all the way across, um, then you know, there's a good chance the charge could have been successful. Uh, the problem, of course, is I'm not sure that Lee's artillery could ever have silenced all the Union guns over there. Maybe he should have realized that. And, of course, what Lee said himself about it was, if I'd known how it was going to turn out, I wouldn't have done it. He said, but I still don't know what else I could have done that would have had any better chance of success. Well, let's stop right there, and uh, I need to take a break here and do a couple of commercial messages, and uh, you can go back into that when we come back. And also, we might at least toss up in the air. It might not be worth the time, but the question of uh, James Ewell Brown Stewart uh, and uh, his absence and what difference it may or may not have made. This is the Tom Carney Show on News Radio 680 WPTF. Dean Harry is our guest. He is a certified guide at Gettysburg and is taking some time on this uh, day in the middle of the 157th anniversary of Gettysburg to talk to us about the battle there at Gettysburg. And we'll be back with him in just a moment. In the meantime, I need to tell you about our friends at King's Auto, uh, who are sponsors of our program. When servicing your car, you need to know your cycle of service. Your cycle of service begins the month that you buy your car. That cycle does not necessarily match with the normal seasonal changes uh, whereby cycles are managed. At King's Auto Service, they will schedule your service intervals based on that cycle, the cycle of service. And and what they will take into account is whether you're using synthetic oil or whether you're driving shorter intervals during their cycle. For those who are using synthetic oil and driving shorter cycles, you may go months past the normal service based on these miles and will need to schedule your service independently two or three times a year. During your service, Kings will check wipers, belts, 
tires and transmission levels. And for those of you who are currently driving a Toyota Prius or some other hybrid vehicle, the certified hybrid technicians at King's are able to refurbish your high-voltage battery pack for less than the dealer would charge to replace it. This re- replacement usually takes place at about 150,000 miles. Call King's tomorrow to schedule a courtesy battery analysis. King's Auto Service and King's Correct Lube, along with the State Inspection Station, are easy to find at 1039 Northwest Street in downtown Raleigh and at kingautomotive.net on the web. King's Auto Service, Raleigh's most reliable auto care center since 1946. July the 4th in America's history, so we hope you'll join us for that. Tonight we're talking about uh, American History 2 and the 157th anniversary of the Battle of Gettysburg, Day 2. Uh, the battle took place July 1, 2, and 3 in the year 1863, and we're commemorating tonight with uh, a visit from Dean Harry, who is a certified uh, tour guide at Gettysburg. And uh, Dean... Uh, 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 I didn't ask you, and I, but I guess I really should, if, if the park is open or has it been closed because of the coronavirus? Well, the park the park has been open all along, but there has been no uh, interpretation by park rangers. But um, the visitor center, which is privately owned, and the park service that maintains offices there, opened last Thursday. Okay. Um, right, so, so if someone everything... wanted to go, they could, they could go. Now, couple more, uh, let's go back to where we were, a couple more, because we don't often have a, someone here to talk to about Gettysburg and Civil War history. But uh, is all the all the wrong, I, I'm prejudicing the question when I say that, but is all the talk about Stewart and his absence, does it mean that much? It was Lee, had he really lost his eyes? Well, I think he had. Um, and I tell people sometimes, it's, it's not like General Lee doesn't have other people that can ride horses uh, with him, but he trusts uh, General Stewart's ability to gather intelligence, interpret what it means, and pass that along to General Lee. He just doesn't have it. Uh, it's sort of Lee bears some um, responsibility for that because when the campaign began, he told Stewart he gave him three three tasks. He said, you know. Uh, guard the guard the right flank of the army as it moves north. You know, stay at the base of the Blue Ridge Mountains. Uh, he said, gather all the food and supplies that you can, and if you can interrupt the Union Army communication with Washington, uh, that would be good too. And uh, of those three tasks, the one that I think sounded the most, uh, you know, sounded the best to General Stewart, obviously, was the latter. Uh, that was a chance to actually be active and do something. He's an aggressive commander. Uh, but the Union Army moved quicker than he thought it would, and he got stuck on the wrong side of it, failed for nearly a week to, to give Lee any information at all. And Lee had no idea where he was, thought maybe some disaster had befallen him. And so uh, had, had uh, Stuart, rather than, than uh, Pettigrew, an infantry officer that Lee didn't know, I told him what he saw at Gaysburg on June 30th. I mean, Lee probably would not have allowed infantry to return to Gaysburg in force on July 1st. I don't think he would have done it. Um, and so, yeah, I do think that there's a lot of finger pointing after the war about why who who lost the Battle of Gaysburg. No Confederate officer ever seemed to want to give the Union Army any credit for winning. 
understanding it, which is understandable, I guess. Um, but a lot of the finger pointing, and of course, Stewart wasn't allowed to defend himself. Uh, so a lot of the blame, you know, ends up with him. And I think some of it's justified, for sure. Let's talk for a moment. Yeah, you, uh, you've been here before, and you may not remember, but I always like to do a little bibliography at the end because I hope there's some some listener out there that if he can't make it to Gettysburg will want to find a book and read about it. And, of course, there are lots and lots of books about Gettysburg. Uh, I'm trying to remember. I've read a general history, and that's probably the kind of thing we're looking for, for you know the average reader so he can you know, cover the whole thing. But I think it was one by a man named Noah. Are you familiar with that, that volume? Uh, Noah Trudeau. Noah Trudeau, that's right. Noah Trudeau. Yeah, that's a that's a an excellent book. Some people don't like the way he he does it chronologically, and so he's jumping all over the battlefield, saying, "Here's what's going on on Culpeper at three o'clock in the afternoon, and here's what's going on a little round top at three o'clock in the afternoon." Some people find that hard to follow, um, but I I actually like it. If you wanted just a really good uh, narrative of the battle, I think uh, just a book called Gettysburg by a man named Stephen Sears. We've also wrote an excellent book on Antietam. Uh, those are um, that that would be my recommendation, either yeah. Trudeau's book or or Sears' book. If you want some more detail? Uh, Harry Fonz wrote uh, a, a trilogy uh, covering each day, uh, July first, July second, and then uh, Culp's Hill and Cemetery Hill. Uh, the only thing he didn't write about was Pickett's Charge, but uh, there's a lot of great books on that too. Harry Fonz is dead now, but uh, well, we need to, to to wrap it up now. But I really do appreciate it. I'll talk to you off the air in, in a minute after we hang up. But I really do appreciate your being with us this year, and for all the times that you have have been with us and uh, and uh, helped us commemorate the 157th anniversary of the Battle of Gettysburg. Uh, uh, the battle was over on the third. Uh, Lee retreated. And then on the 4th, they announced the uh, Union victory at uh, Vicksburg, and that meant a lot of things were not going to happen that might have been thought was going to happen a week before. We'll be back tomorrow night with some American patriotic trivia. Thanks to again to Dean Harry for being with us tonight.